Hello and welcome back to Bourbon Barrel Talk. I'm Scott Benton, your host, and today we are at the New Rift Distillery with Jay Ersman. Hi, Scott. How you doing? Welcome. Doing great. First, thanks for having us out. Um, we took a great tour of uh, the warehouse slash rickhouse, and then we've been here now at the distillery for probably about 30 minutes walking through the process over mm-hmm. here. If you don't mind, jump in and uh, just tell us a little bit about what makes New Rift different. Well, what makes New Rift different? Good, good question. Uh, you know, the back of the bottle says, it explains our name. We are a new riff, like a guitar riff, right? A uh, jazz riff on an old tradition. Uh, that tradition being Kentucky sour mash whiskey production. And uh, we, we, we know the tradition and we respect it and it inspired us to build the place. But we want to do our, our own riff on it and, and do, our, d- d- do this our way while also understanding a commitment to that tradition. And so there's that. Uh, I guess what it, what makes it, it a little different is, especially in this landscape now, we are an independent distillery. When you're in the thick of it and making the stuff every day and picking barrels and doing all the business that we have to do and traveling, you can lose sight a little bit of how precious that independence is and uh, how, uh, how it, it allows a lot of freedom uh, and also a lot of security and... Uh, um, you know, future commitment. Um, we are here to make uh, to make great bourbon. Uh, to be, you know, our, our goal is to be. It's not to sell the most whiskey we can, or sell the most T-shirts or tours or anything like that, or be in the most states. It's it sounds corny, but we remind ourselves of this all the time in meetings. We want to someday be on the list of the world's great small distilleries. And we remind each other of that all the time. I, I have an idea and I take it to Ken and he says, that's a cool idea, but is it really helping us be a great small distillery of the world? Oh, maybe not, Ken. Come up with a better idea like this. We, we tell ourselves this all the time. We want to be one of the great small distilleries, but we want to do it with Kentucky whiskey, Kentucky bourbon whiskey and sour mash whiskey. One of the things that we uh, saw as soon as we got to the actual distillery and one of the things you said that makes you all unique and and it uh, helps with your flavor and everything else. We talk about water and all these different things. Is the fact that you all actually sit on an aquifer and you built your own um, well to draw from. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. S- step one of opening a distillery anywhere in the world and any point in time, hundreds of years ago in Scotland, ought to be a whiskey distillery. Ought to be, do I have a good water supply? And where am I going to get my water? Because you need a lot of water to make whiskey, not only to become the whiskey and, and go in the fermenter, but also to handle all the cooling processes, to cool down the, the mash after you boil the corn, to uh, cool the, the condensate that is the, the alcoholic vapor in the condenser. All these, these things need a lot of water. And so you need a good water supply. And we knew that we could make perfectly good bourbon on a municipal water supply because for the most part, that's all that anybody runs on down in central Kentucky. In, in Louisville, all the distilleries run on Louisville city water, Lawrenceburg city water, Bardstown city water. There are very few sour mash distilleries that run on anything resembling a, a traditional or a ground water supply. So we knew we could make whiskey on, on what would basically be Newport's water, but uh, we wanted to try and do better than that. And man, did we ever succeed. Underneath our distillery runs an aquifer it's fed partly from the river, but mostly fed from the hills. You can see them here out the window. See those? The hills to the south of, of, New, of northern Kentucky, of the riverbank of Newport, of where New Rift sits. Uh, these hills ring the entire uh, sort of river valley here. 
And those hills are full of limestone, and that water comes in groundwater down the hill into the aquifer. And so we get this fantastic distilling water. It's uh, uh, very cold, about four times the dissolved minerality of the city water. And so we have this, this, it sounds silly, but it's a big tasting water. I'll, I'll give you guys a taste of it when we're walking around later. The, the water has got a lot of flavor. Um, Scott, you were saying you grew up on well water. And doesn't it taste often a, a lot, it just has more flavor. Yes. And surely I think that is one reason why we make a big whiskey. It, it's partly the yeast. It's, it's partly the 30% rye. It's partly a lot of things. But our whiskey is broad and broad-shouldered and big, fat stuff. And I'm sure it starts with the water. Uh, so we, we have a distinctive water source. Um, distinctive to the point that, again, it's not bad water in the Louisville's and Lexington's and Bardstown's of the world. Not at all. It's good water. It's good, great whiskey they make. But how is it different for each distillery? And we're different. When you go to Scotland, every distillery, and they were all founded, you know, 100 years ago, most of them, uh, each one has got a different water supply. And this one has the water supply over that burn. But this other one, half a kilometer down the street, comes from that burn on the other side of the valley. And they're very different distilleries, and they're distinctive. And we lose that when we all just tie into a municipal water supply. So a, a big part of what sets us apart, I think, is that we begin, we truly begin with the water, which is where great whiskey making ought to have always begun. Right. Yeah, and I found it interesting that you said that you don't actually, like, I guess, contain your water, like pour, like keep the aquifer open and, you know, keep uh, dropping into a holding tank or anything like that. You're literally pulling from it daily as you're pulling through your mash. That's right. It, it comes right out of the ground and into the into the cooker, and four years later you enjoy it uh, in in New Rift Bourbon. We have it tested annually and we keep an eye on it, but it's extremely consistent stuff. Yeah. Keep, keeps it fresh coming in, right? As you're getting fresh water every day, it's not sitting in a tank, it's not getting old, you're not having to stir it, it's just coming straight out. If you talk to some of the old master distillers and they were really candid, you would hear some remarkable stories about where people's water came from over the years. Yeah, it's probably pretty scary if you really think about it. Because honestly, that's where, you know, beer and all kinds of distilled spirits came from was people, they wanted to kill the enzymes in the water. So therefore what they did, they turned it into something else. You know, cider was one of the first things that it created that type of uh, industry and where old cider makers would, you know, take the water and it was not necessarily good water, but turn it into something that was actually drinkable. Safe to drink, sure. So uh, if you don't mind, go a little bit more and go back towards the history of New Riff. I, I know you all are fairly new, but you all started through another procurement process and kind of fed into New Riff and mm -hmm. how all that happened. If you don't mind, give us a little bit more detail on that. Sure. Well, we come from a background uh, of, Ken and I anyway, of being liquor retailers. You can see it out the window there, the, the iconic party source uh, liquor store that, that Ken Lewis founded in 1993. And I worked there from, from 2001 for Ken. And so we, we had uh, a, a retailer's point of view and experience also in, uh, in, in working with alcoholic beverages. Um, experience which has served us well, certainly, as, as we go and, and New Rift became a reality. Um, and then when you get down, by the way, to all the rest of our people, uh, we have a, a wide variety of, of people working here. Brilliant. I would say that the, the best part, if I may uh, diverge from your question a moment, the best part of working here, look, it's nice to taste our great whiskey all these years later and meet great people like you. The best thing is getting to work with the team that we work with. We make whiskey together. It would be fine with me, I've said before, if we made widgets together, as long as we could make them together. 
And by the way, they would be damn good widgets. <laughs> you, you, you know, I, I, so there's a lot of a lot of backgrounds here that, that make up the new Rift team. We talk a lot about that in 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 other areas. You know, myself and and Josh and and Matt especially and Toby even about you know building building the right team is what makes all things better. You know, it gives you it, it gives you a lift in whatever you're doing. You know, if you have great people and you surround yourself with great people. You make a better product no matter what it is, whether you're selling insurance, doing banking services or building bridges, you know, whenever you do those type of things, it gives you the opportunity to build the best team and things like that. One of the things that I thought that was really unique that you all done was the fact that you hired a a brew master, basically, from somewhere to come in and be your your master distiller. You want to tell us a little bit about that process? Sure, sure. Brian would would blanch at the term master distiller. None of us uh, adopt the term uh, master distiller, at least not yet. Um, we were uh, we, we hired first of all to help us execute this entire vision uh, a consulting master distiller named Larry Ebersold, uh, who was the master distiller many years at the Seagram's plant in Lawrenceburg, Indiana, today's MGP, where they made some of the best whiskey, uh, best bourbon and rye ever. He invented the 95% rye recipe that now rules the world of rye and uh, we, we hired him to be a consultant and he helped us design spec out plan draw the distillery uh, we could have never ever pulled this off without Larry and along with the well he was he was the most serendipitous part of starting new riff finding a retired master distiller the best in the business here in northern Kentucky to be our consultant and he was looking for work so we found Larry and as time went by we got ready to assemble a team it was Larry's advice that said I don't think you should go and just hire somebody out of the Kentucky industry, out of a, 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 a large company that would just come here with a lot of preconceptions about how to do this. I'll train whoever you bring, but it would be great to get someone with a knack, with a real facility for fermentation, not for distilling, but for fermentation, because that's where the flavor is made. And we found Brian Sprantz, who was a, a really like a master level brewer. He's a hell of a good brewer at uh, Boston Beer Company, that's Sam Adams. Uh, here in Cincinnati. And so he joined the team. And uh, the two of us are sort of the whiskey creative team. We bounce ideas around and come up with all these things. Uh, Brian is a, is a wizard at mash bills and, and balancing grains against each other, again, deriving from his from his days as a brewer. Uh, so uh, yeah, that was a, a critical step and great advice from Larry. Um, <clears throat> so as you pick those type of people and you build through the process, what comes to mind when you when you were thinking about all of that whenever you were building your team of individuals whether it be you know Brian is the the, the brewmaster slash distiller and then your marketing team things like that what what made you pick the people that you pick is it like how did you do that you know honestly Ken Lewis would be a better person than me to answer that because he was the one picking them often as well as uh, our vice president of operations Hannah Lowen uh, who I charge uh, especially with being uh, the, the keeper of the culture at New Riff. What we've developed here is is a really beautiful thing. In addition to making the whiskey and everything, as I said, the people and the culture we have built uh, is is something special. And you, you read this about companies, such and so companies got a great culture, and, and you think, man, I, I wish I could work there. Well, at New Riff, we are blessed uh, to work with that. And it was a, a place that had a lot of uh, uh, respect among each other, a lot of uh, room for diversity of people and diversity of opinions and backgrounds and uh, sometimes a, a, a model of a talented person who was a little bit of a corporate refugee 
who maybe wasn't uh, happy where they had been or, or utilized the best or, or was constrained and so on. And, and a lot of us have a little bit of that background. And uh, it's, it's an eclectic uh, and yet really effective uh, team that we've built. So those are some of the values that Ken expressed in, in formulating that. And it, it began with him and his vision. It's pretty cool to, to have that culture here and to have your employees be able to have that enjoyment um, and also to see how that impacts your whiskey and your bourbon. Ken is a, a man of the 1960s. He's a, you know, was following the Grateful Dead when, when probably when I was born, things like that. And he still keeps that, that ethos of those days that if we can just improve our little corner of the world, and if everybody did that, and all their corners of the world got improved, well, the world would be a lot better place. And that is, and by the way, along the way, improve the lives of, of those people who work there. Uh, it's a little hokey, but he says, I swear, by doing that, I don't know how it gets into the whiskey. That's not a measurable. We can measure a lot of things in the whiskey. Uh, we can't measure love, and yet that's what it's made with. We tell people all the time. Yeah, What's we, the secret? Well, it's made with love, man. We, what can we say? <laughs> we did a podcast with another distillery recently, and they said that, you know, 60% was just the science behind everything that, that makes it. 10% is, you know, kind of the marketing ploy and, you know, how you do that. And then 30% of it was dark arts or love or whatever, <laughs> you know. So uh, I can definitely get a feel of that, especially here. You know, the, your girls were so welcoming. We walked into the warehouse and and then your team here, everybody was extremely welcoming. So that that, that's, that speaks volumes to what, what you've built here as far as that goes. Um, kind of to jump to the next piece, um, we always try to try a few things, a few products whenever we go to, you know, meet people or things like that. And you were nice enough to let us try a little few samples of uh, one was a chocolate malt and then one was a, a rye single and then barrel rye. single barrel rye. And then I'll, what was the last one there? The malted rye. The malted rye. Malted so, rye yeah. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, what makes those products different and unique and in the process of making those? Sure. Well, we make um, uh, bourbon whiskey primarily. We make uh, this much bourbon. I'm holding my hands wide apart. And then on a monthly basis, and then we make this much rye. And I move my hands a little closer together. And then we make this much malted rye, 100% malted rye. Now my hands are really close together. So those are what we would call our, our main or constant whiskeys that we always make. And uh, the bourbon is 30% rye in the green bill. The rye is 95% rye, 5% malted rye. So we call it 100% rye. We're a rye-centric house. And those are the, the two main whiskeys. The malted rye... Uh, is, a, is another one we make. It's not out on the market yet. We're letting it get a little extra old, probably be 2021 before it comes out. Anyway, the malted rye is 100% uh, malted rye. And that derives from uh, asking one day our master distiller consultant, Larry Ebersold, who he is not New Riff's, quote, master distiller, unquote, but we call him internally master because like a sensei, he taught us so much and, and really taught us how to run the place. And so we asked him one day, Master, what was your favorite whiskey you ever made? And he said it was that 100% malted rye that they let me make once in a while. And so in a, in a tribute to him, we tried 100% malted rye. It was really good. And as you guys tasted, it's not, it's not what I thought it might be the day we made it, which I thought, well, if rye is spicy, maybe when you malt the rye grain, it becomes super spicy. That's not what happens. It becomes elegant and graceful and sophisticated and supple and it's this beautiful whiskey and when it comes out we think we'll we'll really garner us uh 
uh, a very good you know, mark in the world. So that's the malted rye. So those we make all the time. But because, as you saw in our grain handling equipment, we have the ability to put into our process any bag of grain from a 50-pound bag of chocolate malt to a 2,000-pound bag of malted rye, for example, we can make any whiskey we want. So we've made a whole bunch of what we call, for want of a better term, specialty whiskeys. Uh, we've made weeded bourbon. Uh, we've made heirloom rye bourbon. Some of that came out in November. We mentioned it as we were on our tour called Balboa Rye. Uh, we've made, we made a wheat whiskey one time. We've made uh, heirloom corn whiskeys. We've made a whole bunch of things. One of them was chocolate oatmeal stout bourbon. And that is a bourbon that is made with um, corn. So it's a bourbon, but it's also made with oats and malted oats and a little bit of chocolate malt, as you would put in a stout, an oatmeal stout beer. Uh, the mash bill was Brian Sprance's creation. And uh, it's, it, it is a really unique uh, take on being, allowing ourselves to be inspired by uh, our past as brewers. I'm an old home brewer. Of course, Brian is a, a master grade brewer pretty much. And we are certainly drawn those influences. And so when the question came up, should we do something about oats? It turned into chocolate oatmeal stout bourbon. So those will come out uh, in a limited fashion someday. Most of them are not quite ready for release. Uh, we might see chocolate oatmeal stout uh, sometime late next year. I'm not 100% certain. Depends on when the whiskey tells us it's ready. Right. Have you have you looked into other varieties? Um, you know, if you look at ancient brewing processes and, and distilling and things to that nature, you see like E.H. Taylor recently came out with that the Amorous Grain of the Gods. Do you see any of that type of stuff in the future as far as some Mm, yeah. Weird good, grains. Good question. Um, y yeah, sure. I mean, we, we are intrepid and innovating here and, and fearless. It, it took some courage, <laughs> to be sure, to put oats into the whiskey for the first time. How will the still, the beer still, react to oats? It's not the easiest thing to distill. Uh, everything we've made, our heart has been in our throats a little bit to, to, to see how it would digest. And uh, it, we, we, we make a go of it and we make it happen. And sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's harder. Uh, so we, we've had a commitment to unusual grains from the beginning. We haven't done amaranth yet for what it's worth. We might. Uh, what we have done is work very closely with our farmer, with our corn farmer, to grow some of these things. Uh, we, we don't lose sight of the fact that, that distilling is essentially an agricultural business. Um, and in fact, all alcoholic beverage production is such a business. Every single bottle in that gigantic liquor store next door to us that they ever sold came from a plant. Do you ever think about it that way? Tequila, grapes, beer, hops, everything is, is a plant. And it started on somebody's farm somewhere. And uh, a French farmer growing grapes or a, a Minnesota farmer growing barley or an Indiana farmer where our man is located growing uh, corn and he grows our heirloom rye. And we've also taken to him samples of grain. Here, here's bags of, of corn. This is an antique corn, it's blue. I want you to plant this. And, and make it out for us. So uh, we have engaged at an agricultural level. We don't own a farm. We are not farmer distillers. God, it was hard enough to figure out how to run a distillery. We couldn't figure out how to run a farm too. We, none of us have green thumbs. We'd have gone bankrupt. So we're not farmers. And I admire those people out there who are farmer distillers and they grow the grain. That's fantastic. But we do engage directly and, and intentfully with our farmer uh, in, in entering that agriculture. It's not about what's the cheapest corn I can get this month. We have a consistency and a, and, a, and a quality to that that extends all the way back to the field. So you mentioned blue corn. Have you looked at anything like the Bloody Butcher or any of the other varieties to try to make bourbon out of haven't, that? We haven't grown that. No, not yet. Maybe someday. 
good deal, good deal. Um, <clears throat> tell us a little bit more about why bourbon. You know why? You know, obviously Kentucky. Can, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, but was it that because it's Kentucky, or was it that because just like breweries were just popping up everywhere? It sounds like you know you guys have a background. You being a home brewer, Ken being a liquor store. You know that type of you know process. You know everybody has a different reason of why they choose what they do. And it was it bourbon was just what you were super passionate about or. Well, well, both. I mean, we, we have an opportunity to indulge passions with, with the creation of special things as if bourbon would be somehow boring or something that, 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 that's not the case. Uh, obviously we make bourbon because we're in Kentucky, the land that Ken built this distillery on, he owned it's in Kentucky. How can we not make Kentucky bourbon? What we do have though, is maybe a greater commitment to rye whiskey than we have typically seen in history from uh, the Kentucky distillers. A lot of the, a lot of the old distilleries, the, the, they hated making rye. It gummed up the works. It was sticky. It foamed over in the fermenter. It was difficult to work with, especially in the past, more so than today. Uh, we didn't know all the, the tricks of the trade, the black arts that Larry Eversold taught us to make a 95% rye whiskey. That's an insanely high amount of rye. Uh, and the old-time distillers never did that. They made as little rye as possible for their company's portfolios. And I think now they've gone up from making rye one day a year to, you know, four or five at some of the big distilleries. We have a, a much larger commitment to rye that way, partly because we love rye, partly because Greater Cincinnati in its whiskey history, which has, a, by the way, a tremendous whiskey history here in my hometown, largely forgotten. But this used to be a... a, a blowtorch, a, a mega center of, of whiskey production 100 years ago, 120 years ago. And they were known a little more for rye than, say, a place like Bardstown. But principally, we did it out of a love for rye and, and a desire to set ourselves apart a little bit. You opened this, Scott, by asking what makes uh, New Riff unique. And I, I suppose it's a, a very simple question, but one of them is, look how much rye we make. Uh, a, a huge chunk of our production is rye, much larger than most uh, distilleries and most most distilleries product portfolios and so uh, we we uh, uh, planned that from the beginning and believed which we saw in retail uh, that rye is not going away we, we hear questions like well when is this fad going to end when are people going to stop drinking rye when I started working at the party source we had three ryes we had uh, overholt and Jim Beam and wild turkey rye and I had to beg them to send us Rittenhouse Heaven Hill, you have Rittenhouse down. I want it. You've, you've got it in the warehouse. Send it up here. Then we have four rise. And now look at the store's shelves. They are groaning with rise. And all these rise are out there. And we could see that this is not just a fad or a trend or something that's going to get displaced by the next new hard seltzer or whatever they're drinking these days. It, Fear it's, the it's call. A, yeah, it's a <laughs> cultural shift in America that has led us to drink things like rye, and it's not going away. It will never displace bourbon, but it, it's not going away. So we chose bourbon because, come on, that's our Kentucky identity. But we wanted to include uh, a little wider swath of Kentucky's distilling history than just bourbon. Right. And you also, um, that Balboa rye you all just put out, that was the first time that mash has been released in quite some time, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Balboa rye is, a, uh, is an heirloom grain. Uh, it was uh, released from a uh, Tennessee agricultural station uh, cooperative, whatever they call it, uh, th that improved grains and, and so on, in Tennessee in the 1930s. And by the 1940s, it was one of the primary grains grown all over the Midwest, really. 
uh, and certainly a lot in Indiana. We have records of, of a lot of Balboa. It was one of the main ryes that they produced back in those days. Yeah. And it has been displaced by modern ryes that are higher output and um, uh, more resistant to disease and things like that, but also um, maybe a different flavor. I won't say a, a better or an inferior flavor is made today, but it's certainly different, right? And we see that in, in a great many things. Have you eaten an heirloom tomato? Yes. You know, heirloom breeds of animals, heirloom beans in Kentucky. All these things are, are full of a different flavor and often a better flavor than we get in a modernized uh, agricultural uh, world. And so uh, our farmer uh, in Indiana happened to be growing this rye, preserving this rye. He just grew it as a cover crop. He grew it as animal feed. And he said to us, you know, hey, I, I guess I should mention I grew I grow rye, too. And after falling down on the ground, we got up and said, please, can can we have some? So we distilled it off. I'm sure back in the 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, I'm sure that rye went into whiskey making. But it was never called out as such. And it has not been in modern times made as a as a whiskey varietal, certainly. Yeah, and I know that's one of the things that lately has made you all stand out as a rye distillery is that release of that Balboa rye. Everyone's been talking about cool. it. Cool. Well, it's a really, really special bottle of rye. Yeah. Look for more of it in the future. I, yeah. I'm not typically a rye fan, and, and I really enjoyed the Balboa rye. Scott, we've been praying for it. <laughs> Listen, you know, everybody's got it, their own. It just <laughs> takes time. Idiosyncrasies about themselves. So um, one of the things that's been really impressive about me and for everybody else when we've talked about New Riff is the fact that um, your single barrel procurement process and how you do that and how unique it is and, and, and how fast you're able to do it. Like if somebody wants to come in and do something, yeah. it seems to happen real fast. I will right. tell you on a, on a side note, I was actually on the second barrel pick that you all did. Oh, really? Cool. Allowed to do for uh -huh. one of the Kentucky stores. And it was such a cool process. Yeah. Well, we try and, you know, as retailers ourselves who did a lot of barrel picks and a lot of, of intimate work with the distilleries over our, our private barrels at the party source back in those days, we wanted to do private barrel picks right, or at least what we thought was right, to treat them as they ought to be treated and, and uh, gosh, try and not let it run away from us. It's a, it's a white-hot program. Um, and we, we can, to your point, Scott, about how quickly we can do these things, uh, it's just because we're a small distillery, really. We are nimble. We're not a huge footprint. We, we don't have layers and layers of bureaucracy, things like that. So that's why we can do it relatively quickly. Uh, what has uh, what we've noted is uh, that the single barrels reflect in a in a very um, in a powerful way a, a little portion of our production process and we didn't necessarily plan it this way. Most distilleries, big distillery bigger than us, when they distill whiskey every day, they 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 distill a fermenter and that goes in a tank, and then they distill another fermenter and that goes in the same tank, and another fermenter that goes in the tank. Finally, they have this tank. It's as big as your house. It's full of white dog full of new make and they cut it to proof and they put it in a barrel so the flavor of each individual fermentation which each fermentation is a little bit different the conditions that day the particular microflora that's working was was the sun shining we don't know all the ways that it can be different you know phases of the moon who knows but each one is a little bit different we know that because we see it in our tasting when we go through lots of different whiskey but what what we do at new riff is is different and it's not better or for worse. By the way, when whiskey distilleries make whiskey that way, it's fantastic for consistency. It ameliorates and washes away the difference between each fermenter's you know, sort of specific flavor. We don't do it that way. What we have is a fermenter goes in a tank, it gets cut and goes in the barrel. 
We distill the next fermenter, that goes in the tank. We cut that and that goes in the barrel. We do it again. So every day we run, we have three fermenters going into three separate lots of barrels. And the flavor of each fermenter is more or less, it's not a firm, hard line between each fermentation often, but it's more or less protected all the way to the barrel and ultimately all the way to your, your finished barrel and, and your glass. And so what you get in a new riff uh, range of single barrels or, or a selection, if you're so lucky as to be able to go on one and give us a call, we're open for business, man. We have single barrels. So what you, what you get there is a distinctiveness, not only from this piece of wood that we call a barrel to this collection of wood that we call a barrel. There's always a difference barrel to barrel to barrel. We get a difference from fermenter to fermenter. And that opens up, you know, a whole new swath of, of flavors to, 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 to taste from. If New Riff makes a range of flavor in their whiskey, when you get into our single barrels, you can isolate some of those flavors. You can get the treble and the mid-range and the bass, to borrow a musical analogy. Some will be sweeter, some will be spicier. Um, and we preserve that flavor. And we didn't mean it to do it that way. It just came out by the virtue of how, how relatively small we are. Can you talk a little bit more about the process? Like if somebody wanted to come in and they wanted to do that, they call somebody particular, um, you have eight people come in, just kind of describe that piece Mm -hmm. for us a little bit. You know, we've streamlined it and tried to make it as efficient as possible. It begins on a web form now at our web page is a place to uh, send in information saying essentially I'm interested in a pick. And then uh, uh, you contact our, our barrel coordinating team uh, the hardworking Ali Fawcett is the point of entry for that, and she has a heck of a job every day to balance all of that. And uh, it, we start to schedule schedule you for a barrel pick. Simple as that. Uh, we are months out already in 2020. Uh, we will be booked for 2020 early into that year and start looking probably at 2021, I guess. So uh, if, if anyone's interested in a barrel, high V to your web, web, web page and... Uh, Put in a put in a claim jay what is the yeah. dollar range that somebody would pay for a barrel if if i was to come in off the street you got a, a range that we would look at right uh well we sell uh i mean if a store or a bar gets a barrel of course it, it routes through our distributor whether whatever state that's in uh we do sell barrels to individuals and uh to uh to you know bourbon societies and clubs and things like that they typically process them through uh, through the store. So that's really a question for the store, and I'm okay. in no place to answer it. Uh, but put it this way, a full barrel generates about uh, 205 of our bottles anyway, about 205 bottles at uh, barrel proof, which is typically about 112. We go in the barrel at 110, and after four years, the proof has risen just a little bit to an average of about 111, 112, 113. Uh, about 205 bottles come out of that. And uh, so doing the math at about 50 bucks a bottle typically okay. uh, is what you wind up with. And also just on a side note, how, um, like how many States are you in right now? I know cause you, when you started here, didn't really have enough to kind of go out as far as would have liked to, but I know you've grown tremendously since then. So I yeah. don't know how far you uh, we're distributed widely in our home market of Kentucky and Ohio and Indiana. And we have uh, distribution in a number of other states, uh, sometimes pretty broad, like we're in Pennsylvania, we're in New Hampshire. That means we're in their state stores and things like that. Uh, but in other markets, we're just in a few stores. Uh, we're in uh, uh, a few stores in, in New York City. 
uh, Aster Wine, for example. We're in uh, three store, four stores in California. Uh, K&L Wines, a tremendous retailer out there. Uh, sometimes it's an old friend of ours, like uh, Gary's Wine uh, in northern New Jersey is an old retail buddy of Ken Lewis's. They know each other for years. So when we had whiskey, we call Gary up and say, you ready? We got some whiskey. <laughs> and so we're in other markets like that. I think the total right now is about 16 okay. states. Sure. But some of them are uh, are more widely available than others. They, they drink bourbon in New Jersey? That's also a pretty accurate <laughs> um, description of how they talk in New Jersey. <laughs> I'm from Philadelphia. I, I'm I'm pretty familiar with it, so... Well, I, th- I think you can buy our bourbon in Philly now. So Yeah, you can, but it's steak When control. you go home. It's only steak control. That's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're slowly spreading across the country. Yeah. You know, as, do you, uh, do, you uh, do international as well yet? or um, we, I think we have just this fall sent a few pallets to uh, uh, a store in London. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, very cool. We have listeners. Spain. We're not in Spain yet. Uh, you got to change the bottle size, though, I, right? I don't know when. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have to do a, a different fill and a, and a slightly different label. Uh, we'll, we'll get overseas uh, more and more, but we're not really, you know, to a, dis- a plan of distribution. We're not here to be in a, a lot, a lot, a lot of states. We could be in a lot more states. We would rather not go wide. Yeah. We would rather go deep in the places that we are. Yeah. And particularly not uh, expand too quickly and have a presence somewhere and then have to have less of a presence and uh, particularly always keep our, our home markets uh, well filled with whiskey. We appreciate that. Yeah. And you also mentioned the fact that, I mean, you're basically running a capacity. I mean, every single day you're, you're pretty much making the most bourbon or rye that you possibly can. So, I mean, do you foresee like in the next five to 10 years, as far as expanding possibly, as far as being able to, you know, get another still or, Expansion, boy, that that would be a little tough. Um, we've already expanded. I, I didn't point it out on our tour, but we have, as I said, we have six fermenters, but we started with only four, and we had room and infrastructure to add two more fermenters, and we thought they might go in in you know year six or year seven down the road someday. Success mode, we'll put in two more fermenters. We put those in in month ten, and so we expanded fifty percent already. To expand more would be possible, but it would be a pretty heavy. We'd have to break out the wall and, and expand the footprint of the building. We would not get a bigger still. Um, as I alluded to earlier, uh, when we were on our tour walking around, guys, uh, we have a 500-gallon-a-minute well. That well water is, like I said, the key to everything here. We can run a distillery the size of New Riff on an artesian well, on a, uh, on a, on a groundwater source, right? You can't run a huge bourbon factory on a, on a well water. You have to tie into city water. That's why they do it in Louisville, all those big, huge distilleries. That's why they do it in, in Lawrenceburg. Um, but we can run this little spot here with 500 gallon a minute of well water. If we increase the size of the still, increase the size of the fermenters, things like that, you're essentially building a whole new distillery. We probably couldn't run on that on that well water. So um, I suppose in theory we could break into the parking lot and put some more fermenters out there. but it's not a, an easy thing to do. We already did the easy expansion, which we planned for. We just did it a lot sooner than we expected. Well, good. Build a parking garage. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's plan C. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's for the next generation. So do you ever, um, I know you all used to work at the liquor store across the street. Maybe couldn't you expand and maybe connect with them and kind of create one? Cause there's a brewery in there as well. Isn't there? 
Uh, there is a little brewery in the back, yeah. So uh, Braxton a, Labs has a little brewery back there. But there's no connecting formally between a retailer and a, a, uh, a producer. Right. Uh, there's not a formal connection in terms of the brewery and them either. Right. Uh, any, any beer from that brewery or liquor from New Riff that is on the stores of any retailer anywhere has gone through what we call the three-tier system. So, no, the, the, the Party Source are one of our best customers. They're family and friends. I, I shop there all the time. It's pretty convenient being next to the biggest liquor store in the country, probably. Right. Uh, but they are one of, of many great customers. And uh, we don't have a uh, some some special arrangement or anything. Right. Well, I don't, I don't know if maybe that would be some plans for the future is to make a special arrangement. No, no, yeah. not not really. And again, we can't. We, we cannot. Right. You cannot join a, a distillery in a liquor store. When Ken Lewis opened... Uh, new riff he had to sell the party source in order to become a distillery owner he sold it by the way to his employees did you know it's an employee-owned business now he could have sold it uh, for a lot more to the highest bidder he sold it to what he thought was the right thing to do and, and his employees and so it's it's an employee-owned business pretty cool. awesome so it's kind of kept everything in the family and in in that that speaks volumes to the type of people that you all are as far as building culture, building, you know, a climate, you know, building everything that you've built with New Riff. And yeah, we, we wanted this campus here. And by campus, I mean the, the distillery and, and the, the liquor store as well, the party source. It, it could become a campus of great bourbon and a, and a destination for that. Uh, it always was. But now there's a now there's a distillery here. And uh, that was part of Ken's reasoning. Too. Why, why didn't you go and locate in Bardstown? Why didn't you locate in Louisville? Is, aren't those hot whiskey towns? Well, no, we think we could make this a hot whiskey town. So, Speaking of family, and we're all family here because we're bourbon drinkers, but I assume you treat these whiskeys, rye whiskeys and bourbon, as though you're your family, mm. your kids. Yeah, we Every, do a little bit. And everybody has a favorite kid, even though they won't tell you. Which, which one is your favorite kid? I, I only have one child. He's a six-year-old amazing boy. So I can't speak to a favorite kid. I, I have one. I, if I had more children, maybe I, I would have a favorite. Um, but uh, I, I can't say that about the whiskeys. I, I love them all. I, I think most of us here do have a soft spot for uh, for the Bottled and Bond and the commitment we have to Bottled and Bond. It's our flagship, even though we also make a lot of single barrels. The Bottled and Bond is, is it, it's all we do, in a sense. Everything New Riff makes in whiskey, forever and ever and ever, will be bottled and bond, with the exception of the single barrel stuff, which is barrel proof, and so it can't be bottled and bond. What I mean is we don't make a three-year-old 90 proof. We don't make a two-year-old 80 proof easy drinker or something like that. Everything is a commitment to bottled and bond, which we view not merely as a, a category for hipster bartenders or something like that, or old men. It, it's, it's, a, it's the world's highest quality standard for an aged brown spirit in the world it's a higher quality standard than they use in scotland higher quality standard than they have in cognac and and france and places like and in japan my goodness can canada none of these places can match bottled and bond for integrity uh and it's also by the way a tremendous kentucky uh distilling tradition the kentucky distillers essentially created that category in in 1897 so for a soft spot of, of what's our favorite whiskey, that's the one that really underlines our commitment to quality. Show me another distillery that all they do is the world's highest standard. And I think we're the only one. Well, I really enjoyed <coughs> for, your, for what that's worth. your single barrel rye today that you let us sample. I mean, it was phenomenal. Uh, even, you know, the, the variation between just sampling it uh, neat 
and then adding a little drop of water to it, it really opened up the Thank flavor. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I, I try my best to uh, spread the gospel of drinking your water with a splash of whiskey. Some people recoil at the thought, but particularly when you have a whiskey like New Riff, which is unchill filtered, which doesn't have some of the flavor and texture and aroma filtered out of it at the time of bottling, uh, then it is it is better with a drop of water. I don't mean a lot of water. Don't drink it weak. It's 100 proof, so you can add a little bit of water and still have a good hearty dram. But adding a little water releases more flavor, more aroma in the whiskey. That's how I drink it at home. It's how I recommend people drink it. And uh, if, if you will do that, you will find additional colors of flavor, aroma, texture, everything that go on in the whiskey. Well, I've got a couple more questions for you. I don't know if the other guys do, but... Uh two things that I, I was really interested in one is i love the logo where did that come from yeah. and that type of thing mm-hmm. if you want to go with that yeah the new riff logo um hey it's behind us on the wall there um and uh it was created by our uh by our our early uh marketing team who did a, a great job and we've retained it ever since uh we had it from before we opened the distillery because you got to open with a logo and uh if you look closely at it um there's a lot going on in the logo um, to the point of being a, a riff and being inspired by music, which is where the name comes from. Ken Lewis sitting down to a naming meeting. Uh, I think he was with myself and Hannah Lowen uh, back in probably 2013. And it's hard naming something. It's really hard to name a business, let alone something that you hope is, you know, it's bourbon. It's this iconic category. And he came in one day and said, I had an idea. What about, you know, he's a Grateful Dead fan. And what about... We, we think of the distiller as a, uh, as a, a musician, and he's, he's, he learned the, how to make it, but he's doing a riff. He's, he's making it his own way. He's doing a new riff every time, and the name was born. So inside the, the logo there is a, is a sine wave, you see. Mm-hmm. That, that looks like an audio signal. You can dig into your phones, you listeners out there, as you're listening to this, and probably view the audio stream in your phone as a sine wave or something. Go open GarageBand or whatever. You can see a sine wave like that. But other people have found, uh, this is near and dear to my heart because I'm a guitarist, do you see a guitar string vibrating? Well, that's pretty cool. Then look at the, at the, at the, the orange part of the logo. Do you see an N? Do you see an R? How about, do you see a river? It's all of these, which we're next to, you know, the, the river that defines greater Cincinnati. It's all those things going on in the logo at once. Yeah, that, that's what I was, when I was looking at it and I looked at the thing, and, and as we were talking a little bit about your history, I was like, man, really, whoever put thought in that logo really just yeah, did a lot. A, a design firm out of, a branding a design firm out of uh, Covington, Kentucky. Local guys called uh, BLDG. So, so they did a wonderful job with that. With that. Really, it's really a cool logo yeah. and uh, has grown on us. and We like it a lot. And the next one I wanted to talk a little bit about was, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this when we were in the warehouse, but as you said, you've been holding back like roughly 30% of your barrels to age a little bit longer. Um, Do you know when that process is going to come through? Is it going to be at seven years you're going to start to release more barrels or is it going to be at eight or 10 or what is that going to look like in the future for New Riff? Yeah, good question. You know, it it speaks to uh, one of the most eye-opening or, or even poignant parts of working here, which is the, the timeline you have to view your career or your work on. And we are looking always four years in the past to what, what is ready now. But we're also looking four and eight and 20 years and things into the future. 
And speaking for myself, I never had to work that way before. You know, in retail, you, you cast forward a year or a wine vintage or things like that. And here we are looking, you know, four, eight years out and saying, crap, we need a new warehouse in three years. Better go get the land today. You know, it's that kind of a timeline at a scale. And so you learn to uh, to look at things uh, through a, a, a like a long telescope, you know, a long it's hard to see the future. You can only try your best. So we don't, we, we, you quickly learn not to put uh, too many you know, hard predictions or, or desires or plans on the whiskey. That is, if your goal is to have the whiskey, that is what that whiskey ought to be at that time in the future. You know, if we said, well, it's going to be six years old, commit ourselves to that. What if, what if it's not ready enough by then? What if there's, there's not enough difference between that and the four-year-old? We don't know until it gets there. It's like saying when my, my kid is 18, I know what college he's going to. You don't know that. You don't know if he'll be a, a, a you know, STEM major or a liberal arts. God help him. Liberal arts. Waves tiny pennant for liberal arts. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, you, you, we, don't, we don't peg it in like that. We just say it's going to be older, in quotation marks. And if that's six, seven, eight, we, we don't know. We usually internally say seven. But it, it could be older. It, it could be younger. Uh, and then we'll also be setting enough aside to make, you know, 10 year, 12 year. I would love to see what this does at 15 years. I don't know. Maybe that's too old. I would love to see that too. Uh, I bet you would. Yeah. Yeah. I'll let you know. Yeah. Put you on speed dial. We'll I appreciate it. Don't worry. It. We'll be first in line. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, I don't know what that'll be like. You know, we just really don't. You're just going to wait and taste them and we see just, if they're the right just maturation where so you want to be. In the fullness of time. And this is a generation's work. We believe, we hope, we're trying to build here a generational business. This is not being built up to be sold off to a, to a conglomerate. Uh, that's one reason why we didn't jump out to 30 markets or all these markets. You know, uh, we, We're not here to be sold. We're here to build a generational and a lasting business. And that comes with finding out what that whiskey is like. And if you, we peg ourselves into a six-year-old and a 10, maybe they really need to be seven and 12 or something like that. I don't know. But we do have what we think is a pretty generous commitment of 20 to 30 percent as as production allows uh, to be to become older stuff. So is that in all varieties? So you're putting back 20 percent of your rye, 20 percent of your malt is generally. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, hey, I, I don't have any more questions. I really just wanted to, you know, thank you again for having us out. Um, if you uh, want to reach New Riff or want to get in touch with them, how would they do that, Jay? Uh, well, you could go to newriftdistilling.com. Uh, That's our website. You find a lot of information in there. Uh, you can also uh, go to the New Rift Whiskey Club, a separate site, uh, which is a, a place you can sign up to be uh, part of, a, of a, an opportunity to buy limited whiskeys when they come out. Uh, you have to buy them and come pick them up at the distillery, but you can join the New Rift Whiskey Club. We are uh, hashtag New Rift on Twitter and Instagram, and we're full of stuff there as well, Facebook. Good deal, good deal. And if you want to reach us at Bourbon Barrel Talk, you can hit us up on Facebook at Bourbon Barrel Talk. Um, you can also email us at bourbonbarreltalk at gmail.com. Thanks again, Jay, for having us out, and uh, we're signing off today. Thanks My pleasure, again. Scott. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.